0: Now for those of you who uh, were here last week, uh, you'll recall that it was our kickoff Sunday beginning to the fall, uh, and we didn't talk overly much about all the different programs that we have, trying to get people to sign up for different things, and the reason for that is that this year, uh, kickoff Sunday is leading into a lateral, and we are lateraling the ball to you in the form of a survey which everyone loves to fill out. So, uh, in the foyer, there's actually a, a survey that we put together about uh, sort of the, the time that you have available, the, the experiences and skills and gifts that you have. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at uh, church life not in terms of the church writing a few programs that people need to sign up for, but rather trying to determine what are the gifts that God has distributed in this body, what are the skills and interests that people have in this in this group? And because doubtless there are all kinds of things uh, where you have abilities where we currently don't have a program that would be the best fit for those. And so where's that where that's the case? We're interested in seeing what we can start, what we can create, but also. I do know there are a number of people who will say that you know, they, they'd like to be involved in the church. Uh, they just don't know exactly where they might slot in. And so if we have sort of an idea of uh, you know, the gifts and abilities and experience that you have, as needs arise, as they do, we might be able to sort of just... just Give you a call or send you an email and say, look, here's an opportunity. If you're interested in serving, uh, here's, here's an area where we need some help, and this lines up well with, with the gifts that you have. So if you could pick one up, uh, they're going to be on a table out in the foyer over the next couple of weeks. Uh, fill it out, return it. Uh, we'll have our, our ushers distributing them next week and the week after or so. And so if you could just make sure, please pick one of those up, uh, and then we will uh, see what we can do in terms of putting that together. Now, last week we also started into the book of James, and so this week we're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. So, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. This is the Word of God. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade even while they go about their business." he created. Now there are some various themes in these verses. You could maybe profitably treat them uh, sort of over the next couple of weeks. We're going to take it all as one section, though. Uh, there are some ideas that connect these idea these themes together. So before we look at this passage uh, in detail, let's pray. Father, we would ask that uh, your Spirit now uh, would work in us to open your Word. We ask that your Spirit will guide our thinking, uh, direct our thoughts, uh, guide our hearts, uh, allow us to uh, understand and also to cherish your Word, to benefit from it. Uh, We pray that you'll help us to learn more about who you are, uh, the God that you are in all of our circumstances. Help us to see uh, fresh pathways to honoring you. Help us to follow you, Lord. We pray that through your word, you will call to us. And Lord, we we read here that it is through the word of truth that you give us birth. And so we pray that the word of truth will be life-giving and and life-transforming, life-generating this morning. That as we come to your word of truth, you will do that work that only you can do, that you will make the dead live, uh, that you will bring forgiveness of sin, that you will give spiritual life. Father, this is your work. Uh, We are dependent on you for it. So we look to you. We acknowledge our frailty. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge our absolute need of you. And we pray that you will be to us all that you are and all that we need you to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, this text obviously is following along with what James has said when he introduces uh, the book uh, written to those who are scattered, those who have experienced persecution, and he wants them to know that even though they're suffering and even even though they're going through a real trial... When it comes to the accounting of their life, not that they feel happy because they don't, but when it comes to the accounting of their life, they can take that trial and they can assign it into the asset column of their life. It's, it's pure joy because it's not nothing but joy, but there's an intensity or a quality of joy because God is at work in their lives to refine their faith, to give them perseverance. And as perseverance continues to develop its work, you'll be mature and complete And in these circumstances, which can be very, very difficult, you know, we recognize that we are not wise enough to navigate through these things. We're not wise enough or good enough to, on our own strength and on our own wisdom, get through life, particularly when things are rough, particularly when there are trials of many kinds. And so James tells us, look, if you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In other words, it's okay to come to God and acknowledge your lack. In fact, you have to. You have to come to God and say, I'm not able to do this. I'm not strong enough. I'm not wise enough. I need your help. And he'll give you that wisdom without chastising you, without rebuking with you, without, without telling you that you're stupid and should have figured it out long ago. He waits to help you, and so he comes along and and helps. But when you ask, we're told you have to be single-minded, you know, not a foot in the world and a foot trying to be spiritual. You have to actually want God's assistance. You have to believe that he delights to help you. Now, for a lot of people around the world, this is true today, I recognize, but in sort of global and historical perspective one of the things that has been a tremendous trial and continues to be a tremendous trial for people today is poverty. Now, in Canada, there is poverty. I do recognize that. But the definition of poverty in Canada compared to global averages is really quite stark That is, around the world, there are all sorts of people who, every single day, are tasked with working nonstop to simply be able to provide food to eat. Around the world, there it is—it is uh, sort of impossible to even conceive of snack food because there are no snacks. Everything you can ever possibly eat is necessary to sustain life and energy. And so, for us in Canada, we look at we look at poverty in terms of perhaps not being able to, you know, just struggle to pay to your hydro bill, struggle to pay rent. Life is getting very expensive. But in many places around the world, poverty is actually literally a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of comfort and convenience. And the same is true to the people that James is writing to. When he's writing to people about poverty, the believers in humble circumstances or believers who are poor in material goods, he's writing to people who, without any social infrastructure whatsoever, may go through a day or two without anything to eat. He's writing to people who are facing grinding poverty. He's writing to people who know what it's like to be hungry and not to have any money whatsoever. He's writing to people who know what it's like to have a precarious sort of daily income where if you don't work, you don't get paid, and you don't have any savings whatsoever. If you don't work that day, sick as you may be, you, know, you don't get paid and you don't eat. It creates a perpetuating cycle of weakness and lack of work. And so he's not writing to people who are struggling to afford the latest iPhone, He's not indexing poverty as, I'm, really, I'm terribly sorry that, that you had to go camping instead of on a cruise. He's writing to people when he's talking about poverty, he's talking about real poverty. He's talking about issues of life and death. Don't forget, he's writing to people who have been scattered in persecution. Some have had to abandon their homes, all their material goods. They've had to go off to a new city. They may not have employment. So how are you to face circumstances like that? Well, James says, you ought to be awfully proud of your high position. This is the second thing he said, which would get him fired from the deacons if he was pastoring a local church. The first was consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. This is the next one. You're facing grinding poverty? Be proud of your high position. You know, what is he saying? You want to say, James, don't you understand real life? And of course he does, and this is through the Holy Spirit of God. What he sees is sort of peeling back sort of socioeconomic demography. He sees what's real and what's vital and what's lasting and what's important. In other words, he's saying, let's assess our situations not by sight but by faith. Let's assess our situations, not by sort of uh, temporal circumstances. Let's assess our situations in terms of eternity. Now, Now, what is your position? Who are you? And so much of this, actually, is sort of spiritual, psychological identity. Who are you? Well, in our society, increasingly people are being pushed to form their self-identity on the basis of sort of group identification. So who you are gets slotted into uh, race, gender, economics, education, genetics, parenthood, uh, parentage, all of these different ways. There's all kinds of different ways of analyzing who you are. And for a lot of people who they are is is almost irrefragably in our society tied up with things like how much money do you make? Do you have a prestigious career? James says, look, who are you? Are you someone who's unemployed? Are you someone who's poor? Are you someone in humble circumstances? Well, yes, in terms of the world. But what's your real position? Who are you really? You're a child of God. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Your sins have been atoned for through the death of Jesus. You have been adopted by God. You are an heir of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You will reign with him forever. What are your circumstances? Well, you're poor. But aren't you actually the richest people in all of the world? You know Jesus, and Jesus knows you. Everything God is is for you. Everything God has, God's entire estate is yours, you are his heir, it's all for you. Believers, yes, humble circumstances, but rich in faith, rich in God, rich in all that God has for you in his grace. Take pride in your high position, not because it's you, but because it's God. He's the one who positions you this way. He's the one who gives you lavishly from his, his superabundance. This is your God. He is your Lord and your Savior. Take pride in that because nothing can take that away from you. My, my dad was a school teacher. Retired uh, over the last few year, uh, number of years, and he had a colleague who also retired. And He was told they were told that they could keep their pension with the sort of the teachers' investment fund, whatever it's called, or they could take out all of their pension money and invest it on their own. My dad kept it with the teachers' fund. He had a friend who took it all out, every dollar, every penny and put every single thing into Nortel. All of those years of savings, gone. The lesson is, diversify your portfolio. <laughs> gone. Just gone. In a lot of African countries, they've experienced hyperinflation, where you could save for decades and decades and decades, and then overnight, all of your savings are worth literally nothing, not even the paper they're printed on. All of our money can be gone in a moment. All of our material goods can can, can perish in a second, but nobody can ever take away from you what God gives you eternally. No one can ever take away from you the spiritual blessings that are found in Jesus Christ. No one can do that. And so, believers, stop assessing your life circumstances on the basis of temporal material things around you. Start assessing them through what God has for you, which will last forever. Now, the reflex of that, then, is... Believers in humble circumstances, you ought to take pride in your high position also probably because those circumstances cast you back on God. So there's probably a subjectivity here as well. It's not just the objective things that God has for you eternally in terms of spiritual blessings, but subjectively, you know, you're you're sort of more cast on God. If If you're really struggling with poverty, all of a sudden praying for your daily bread takes on a slightly different meaning than praying praying for your daily bread does when you have a cupboard stocked full of food and a deep freezer full of goods too. If you don't get that food that day, you don't eat. Lord, provide us with our daily bread. And so even there, you're cast more on God moment by moment. But the reflex is, if temporal material things don't matter that much eternally, then the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Since they will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way the rich will fade even while they go about their business. So the rich, whether they're believers or not, are, t- are, are, are temporal, just like everyone else. We, we, we go through this life, whether rich or poor, and we fade away while, while we, we go about sort of the daily living. The rich person here, obviously, sort of ironically, is going about their business, consumed with their business. And even while they go about their business, they fade and die. That's how life goes. No amount of money will keep you from death. No amount of building business empires will keep you sort of flourishing in material prosperity in this life forever. We're all going to die. And in that sense, how much you accumulate around you doesn't really matter that much in terms of significance. If your significance is in all of your material goods, which you might enjoy for a few decades, and then you're gone, what did it really amount to? What did it really matter? And so this isn't really a condemnation of riches. It's just putting it into perspective. Why would someone who has a lot of material goods be proud or arrogant about that fact? Now, you could work through, you know, a variety of other theological truths, too, that, that even the ability to create wealth is a gift from God. You know, they, the drive that sort of entrepreneurial sorts have, uh, index to good health and circumstance uh, and a healthy economy, all of that sort of I- is tied to the providential ordering of God in your life. You know, opportunity for education uh, tied to God's providential ordering in your life. I mean, the, the reality is one of the things that we need to recognize too you know, is that there are a lot of people around the world who are absolutely brilliant and illiterate because they've never had an opportunity to go to school. I mean, there are all kinds of people all over the world who, who, who are far, far smarter than most of us, and they can't read or write, because every day they don't have the luxury of education. They, they they have to work hard to try to scrape together some food to eat. That's reality. So whatever opportunities we have had are tied to all kinds of things that we have no control over. genetics, environment, It's awfully hard to to build a business if if your city is being bombed. Lack of war, something that you don't control, necessary for material prosperity. There's all kinds of things that go into everyone. There is no such thing as a self-made person. There is no such thing as someone who has earned their own fortune and way in the world. We are dependent for, on a myriad of factors, many of which we have absolutely no control over whatsoever. And so if we have any wealth at all, it's because of what God has done, how God has acted providentially in our lives. There's nothing to take pride in. Thankfulness to God, yes. Recognition of blessing, yes thankfulness for opportunity, yes, but no pride. In fact, the, the richer we are, the more humble we should feel, and the more we should hold our things lightly, the more we should look to use our prosperity to bless others, recognizing how temporal these things are. We'll pass away like a wild flower even while we go about our business. Truth of the matter is, Trials and temptations come through both poverty and riches. There are unique sets of temptations. There are unique sets of trials which can attend both categories. So then James says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, the Lord, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here you have sort of a transition. I mean, this this connects well with verses 2 and following. It connects well with verses 13 and following. Uh, But the idea here is, look, you're going through life, and there's going to be a lot of trials, whether you're rich or poor. There's going to be a lot of difficulties. There's going to be trials of many kinds. And so as you go through life, there's going to be testing. Your money's not going to exempt you from it. Your poverty's not going to exempt you from it. And so when you undergo trials, blessed is the one who perseveres. Blessed is the one who keeps going. Now, you might actually see there implicitly the possibility that not everyone will persevere. That is, it, it, it may be possible to crumble. It may be possible to be broken. But blessed is the one who perseveres under trial Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Well, how are you blessed if you persevere? You're blessed because, rich or poor, by God's grace, you persevere in faith and trust all the way to the end. You will be rewarded with a crown of life that's what God has for you you know you, you, it's sort of a, a, a cliche but but you put you know all of your your decades into the company and then they they give you a golden watch you know, and off you go you know, off you go into retirement you know, God gives you a crown of life God gives you something that you can't buy in this world God gives you something which is lasting God gives you something which is everlasting. And, and, and so, with all of the time and effort and energy being, being spent, you know, sort of running around for money and material goods, you know, James sort of call you, look, persevere in the test, persevere in the trial, persevere through this life, because God has something for you which actually lasts and matters. God has something for you which counts. It's a crown of life that you will wear in glory forever and ever and ever. And the Lord has promised it. The the Lord has not promised to exempt people from trials. The the Lord has not promised to palliate and alleviate emotional suffering and duress in this world. But He has promised. You persevere. You stay with Him by His grace. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death fearing no evil because he is with you. Through it all all the way to the end he promises I'll give you a crown of life. You will overcome. By my grace you'll be more than a conqueror In the end, the Lord has promised this to those who love Him. Not to those who stoically decide that they will just suffer because that's the way it is, but to those who will persevere because they love God. To those who will persevere through trial because their eyes are fixed on Jesus. They're able to see beyond poverty. They're able to see beyond riches. They're able to see whatever, whatever it is that that trial presents to them. They're able somehow, by God's grace, to see through it, to persevere, to fix their eyes on the Lord because they love Him. And to keep putting one foot in front of the other on the path He has called them to walk precisely because He is their God and they love Him. And he says, you do that. Right now, you might not think it's worth it, but it will be. You'll have a crown of life. It is awfully tempting in this world. Older, Older theologians used to have no problem referring to this world as a veil of tears. We want to be a little peppier and happier today, except that they weren't wrong. This life is a veil of tears for many people in many ways. And it is awfully tempting. perennial problem is to blame God. Now I'll be honest. I tend not to be in preaching, but I'll make an exception just now. Sometimes it just it just does almost seem impossible to understand life. There are there are good people who suffer a lot, and I realize we can index it. Well, not everyone's good. Yeah, I, I yes, 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 whatever. I know. Total depravity, I understand. And yet, don't we, don't we feel the moral outrage? Don't we know that, that God does look at some people relatively as innocent in certain circumstances? Don't we know that? Total depravity notwithstanding. Or else, why bother getting involved trying to stop sexual abuse in the Philippines, which we've done? Why, why did we get involved in that? Because we realize this is wrong. There are people being treated in ways they ought not to be treated. They're innocent relatively in that context. Where's God in that? Where's God when when Christian people for decades have, have prayed and implored and begged for there to be a cessation of abortion? And there isn't. Where is God in Rwanda in the 1990s? Some Jewish theologians very famously said it is impossible to believe in God after Auschwitz. This week I read a book on Stalingrad. The amount of Horrific suffering of both Russians and Germans in the winter of that battle is unthinkable. There are parents who have prayed for decades for their children. Without seeing one single glimmer of spiritual fruit or spiritual hope in that person's life, there are people who beg God for help and fall into the same sin again and again and again and again. There are people who beg God for relief. and who just suffer more and more and more and more. And that's just real. That's life. And one of the natural human responses is to blame God. How you sort all of this out, I don't know. But the one thing that this text tells us is that God doesn't desire sin and He's not running around trying to make you sin either. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, there may be an awful lot of things that you cannot understand, that you cannot understand globally, that you cannot understand personally, that you can't understand sort of, sort of in the interiority of your, of your psychology and emotional life and spirituality. There may be a, a lot of things. That, well, th- Listen, if you have any spiritual sensitivity at all, there are things about yourself you have prayed for God to change that haven't been changed Yet, I would be willing to bet. There are things that cause an enormous amount of pain and suffering and shame, but aren't changing. You want to say, God, you could just help. So a little bit of strength, a little bit of grace. You can change my heart. I'm asking you to, but nothing is happening. Year after year after year after year. And at some point, the temptation arises this is God's fault. God is the one to be blamed for all of this, for the circumstances for these atrocities, for my lack of spiritual maturity, for my continued sin. This is God's fault. Where is he? What's he doing? James says, well, he doesn't say this, but I think he would. Look, there's a lot of things you're never going to understand. But here's one thing you can understand. God isn't trying to make you sin. You sin. Because there's evil inside of you. The evil's not inside of God. You sin when you're dragged away by your, when you're enticed by your own evil desires. And the language that he uses here is like sort of pilfered uh, from, from fishing. You, know, you, you, you have these desires, you, you see that, that bait, and you come up and you, and you take it, and, and you're hooked by it. And you're dragged out of the water, and you're put to death. Desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. So the evil, James says, is not in God. Don't blame him. The evil that we see, the evil that we experience in this world and personally, the source is found in the evil nature of human beings. God is not taking good people in the sense of people who really actually love righteousness. He's not taking those people and saying, well, I know you really, really love righteousness, but I'm going to change your heart so you want to do something evil right now. He's not taking intrinsically good people and making them bad so that they'll go and do bad things. The evil arises from their own heart. They're dragged away when they're enticed by, the, by opportunity which aligns with the evil in their hardened nature. I think when, when God hardens Pharaoh's heart in Exodus, there are a variety of things to work through with that. But the one thing that is not happening is you don't have Moses coming to Pharaoh, Aaron as a spokesperson, saying, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, you know what? I was just thinking the other day how much I'd like to do that. I'd love to bless you and let you go. In fact, I'm going to give you all kinds of material goods. And in fact, don't come back. Go and establish yourselves in a new home and I'll do whatever I can to help you. He doesn't say that and then God says, oh, this isn't going the way I want it. I wanted, to throw down, I wanted to throw some plagues down on Egypt. So Pharaoh, no, change your heart, now you're bad. And Pharaoh says, no, I really want to let the people go. And God says, no, you can't. And he says, I want to. And, and then God just overpowers him and makes him evil. That's not what's going on at all. God isn't taking someone's heart who wants to do what's right and making them do bad things. He's not taking Pharaoh with a soft heart and hardening it. He's strengthening Pharaoh's evil resolve. He's allowing, he's allowing Pharaoh. You, 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 you want to resist me? Fine. I'll remove grace and you'll resist me. You, you, you want to resolve to fight against me? I'll strengthen that resolve. But it's your resolve. God is not imparting into Pharaoh's heart anything that's not already there. Now this by itself is one of the most terrifying judgments of God. You see it also in Romans 1. One of the most terrifying judgments of God is the judicial hardening of the heart where he basically says, you want to sin? Fine. Go ahead. And he allows people. He, he sort of gives them even a little, little push in that direction. It's the direction they're they are they're already going in. God doesn't take good hearts and fill them with evil. And so when we're tempted, if we ever do anything wicked, we can't say, well, that didn't come from me. That came from God. The wickedness, the evil arises from our own hearts. Our own nature then ultimately gives birth to death. Let's hold on to that for a moment. James switches a little bit. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly, heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So it's possible to be deceived about this. You might think that you are the one who sort of uh, is responsible for every perfect, good and perfect gift. I mean, literally the text says that God is responsible for every good giving and every perfect gift. Perfect gifts come from the Father, Perfect gifts come from the Father of the heavenly lights. He he, he doesn't change. He's not mutable. He's not like the the fickle forecast of astrology. He's not like shifting shadows. He doesn't change. And, And every good and perfect gift that you receive, every good giving and perfect gift comes from his hand, comes to us through him. And what's the best gift of all? It's that he chose verse 18. This is is something he wanted to do. This was his volition. What, What do your desires get you? Your desires bring evil, which brings sin, which brings death. God's desire, that is God's choice, is to give us birth through the word of truth. Now, this is not physical birth, this is spiritual. I mean, the, the only reason you exist is that God wants you to exist. God, God chose, out of all, the, out of all the, the unimaginably large number of configurations of people that could ever be, God, God desired for you to exist. And if you were a believer in Jesus Christ, not only did God desire to bring you physically into the world, not only did God ordain your existence, He also ordained that you would have spiritual birth, the, the new birth, the second birth that Jesus talks about with Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3. That He, the Spirit, blows wherever He wants. He is the one who does this miracle of of regeneration, giving us spiritual life. He chose to give us life. How? Through the word of truth. Through the message of the gospel of Jesus. We, We hear of what Jesus has done for us and we put our faith in him, we trust in him. That we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That is, these are the early believers that James is writing to. There's going to be a lot more. You know, he, uh, James would not have been aware, uh, doubtless, that, that 2,000 years later, people you know, in a country he couldn't even imagine existed, speaking a language that, that he would have found barbarous and, and dressed in odd clothes. You know, he, he couldn't have possibly imagined that, that 2,000 years later, there would be this many people worshiping Jesus this many people having put their faith in him, this many people are receiving sort of the gift of eternal life through the word of truth as God chooses to bring uh, regenerative power and restoration to them. First, first, yeah, the, 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 this little audience of, of believers in of the first century, that is just the very first fruits of the harvest. He had no idea how much was coming in and we have no idea how much more there may be to be gathered in before Christ returns. But notice the difference. What does our sin nature give birth to? Death. What does God's nature give birth to? Spiritual life. Eternal life. A crown of life. And you look at those two things. And that's your contrast. Out of your sin nature comes death. And of God's spiritual nature comes life. And so whether you're rich or poor, does it really matter? Do you find identity in your material goods, whether it's the lack of them or the abundance of them? Do you blame God for all of your problems, for all of your ills, no, you, you come to God through Jesus. Your nature gives birth to death. God's nature gives birth to life. And in grace, God chooses to give birth to people through the word of truth. An old scholar said, No man ever yet succeeded in justifying himself by laying the blame of his sins on God. But he may do so by laying the sins themselves upon the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, and by washing his stained robes and making them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice that distinction. It says, no one is made right by laying the blame for their sins on God. But you are made right by laying your sins themselves on God. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what God calls us to through the word of truth and giving people new birth. He calls people, stop blaming everything else except yourself for your sins. Recognize that sin and death comes out of your heart. But there's a savior. Take those sins and put them on him. Let him atone for them. Let him pay for them. Don't try to earn your way with God. Trust the provision that God has provided to get you there. Trust Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And may God help us just once to see through all of the the distraction of this temporal life with career and education and, and trial and sin and all that's entailed. May he help us just to see himself, see the Lord, and to love him and persevere. Because he's given us birth, we can love him. And if we love him, we can persevere all the way to the end. I'm going to ask your musicians to come and lead us in our closing song. Father, by by your word and by your spirit, give us all that we need to persevere under trial. Lord, help us to see you. So often in the Old Testament, we read that you hide your face. Father, may your face shine upon us. May we see the glory of your countenance. And in seeing you, may we find strength. For we need it but also for Christ's sake and our witness. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Go in grace and peace.